a Podcast One production. This episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was produced in partnership with GIO. report from the Bushfire Royal Commission has found a national cabinet should be set up to respond to future disasters. Federal Minister for Emergency Management David Littleproud... If we've learned anything from 2020, it's that we need to be prepared. We weren't prepared for a pandemic. And because of that, we're all learning how much change we're prepared to absorb. We're in uncharted waters here. Now, there's no question that the future will continue to surprise us. How much it surprises us, that part is up to us. We can never know what tomorrow will bring, but we can prepare. I'm Mark Pesci, and on this episode of the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future, we're looking at bushfires and how to protect our lives, our homes, and our communities. My partner, Leon and I bought this property about a year ago from a good friend who wanted to sell to someone who would look after it. It is our bush sanctuary, a little shack on 120 acres, full of bird life and home to wombats, echidnas, possums, wallabies and kangaroos. We were very nervous and tense throughout December because we were watching closely on our phones the fires near me app. It shows maps of the fires as they progress. As the Gosper Mountain fire in Wallamai National Park grew into a mega fire, we became really stressed. About five days before fire arrived, we cleaned up the dry leaves and other debris from around the house and watered as much as we could, which wasn't much because the permanent spring-fred creek that was our main water supply had dried up a couple of weeks before because of the drought. By the day after Christmas, another fire was approaching our land from the south. So the threat was suddenly very, very real. We got the phone number of a wonderful ex-RFS guy, Greg, a sort of privateer, who was volunteering in the area as he also has land there. We could see from the map that the fire had reached our land and Greg was there on our land, on the phone to me, telling me the fire was slowly moving down the mountain and was 100 metres from our house. Now, although Josephine sounds calm as she talks about the Gospers Mountain megafire getting closer and closer to her bush sanctuary... That's not how she felt at the time. On the 28th of December, we were very stressed, not knowing if our place had survived or not. And then we heard that Greg and three other guys, one on a bulldozer, defended the house the night before. Some very big old trees were on fire up close to the house, and he said it was dangerous and full on. We owe those guys big time. A couple of days later, Leon and I were able to walk into our place from about a kilometre away. We couldn't drive in because of fallen trees on the road. 
The ground and trees were still smouldering and intermittently we could hear a huge crash echoing through the valley as another tree fell. We put out food and water for the animals and birds. So happy to see our lovely little house intact. However, we can see a lot of work ahead to help the land regenerate. Josephine's bush sanctuary survived, but the land, the land is going to need some time to recover. But will the land get that time? In our last episode, we spoke with climate scientist Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick. She's been looking at the occurrence of heat waves over the last 70 years. What we found, though, is, you know, pretty daunting and pretty scary. It does certainly fit to that narrative of hotter, longer and more often. Um, Basically, everywhere in the world have seen an increase in the frequency and duration of heat waves. So do more and longer heat waves mean a higher risk of bushfires? There is certainly a relationship between heat waves and bushfires. This is something, though, that we're still working on. I actually have a PhD student working on this right now. We know that extreme heat exacerbates bushfires as it can dry out fuel much more quickly. Uh, We know that heat waves are coupled with drought, so we see more heat waves in drought-like conditions. And we also know bushfires are more likely to occur during drought-like conditions. So there's all these sorts of interactions with these types of extremes. But of course, it's more complex than that. Bushfires are much more complex in heat waves in the sense that they're not caused by just an increase in temperature. Um, you know, they're caused by other climate variables. So temperature is obviously one important component, but then there's relative humidity, there's wind speed, uh, there's the, the how dry the fuel is to begin with. So absolutely, heat waves and extreme temperatures do play a role into bushfires, but just how much and how that sort of relationship may change under climate change, we're only just starting to scratch the surface there. But in general, more heat waves, fuels dry out more quickly, If you have an ignition factor, then there's more likely for a bushfire to take off and be one of those really extreme pyrocumulonimbus fires that we all dread. Pyrocumulonimbus clouds. Those are the dreaded fire clouds where a fire gets so big and so hot, it starts generating its own weather front. We saw pyrocumulonimbus during the black summer, and it might be that we'll be seeing more of them if we see more catastrophic bushfires. But is there another way? Is all of that just inevitable? Is Australia doomed to an increasingly frequent series of increasingly catastrophic bushfires? My name is Victor Stevenson. I'm a Takalak descendant from North Queensland in the Gulf Country. Grew up in all through North Queensland all my life, and I'm an Indigenous fire practitioner and also work with music and um, filmmaking, and I do a lot of writing as well now. Victor is the author of the book Fire Country, in which he lays out a different way of thinking about bushfire in Australia, in which these big, catastrophic bushfires might not pose such a great risk. And that's not a new way of thinking, quite the opposite. Well, Aboriginal fire management is um, it's very complex knowledge, and it's layered knowledge, and there is... Um, shared principles right around this nation around what Indigenous fire is, and that is, you know, looking after the land and burning the land to improve the um, vegetation and its productivity and, and resources and to support foods f- for the animals and, and in return for people. So it's a responsibility that's also 
connected spiritually and deeply entwined into the stories and cultural laws and through environmental and social, through Aboriginal knowledge systems and um, ways of life that have been for thousands of years. And and on top of that, you know, it's, it's also um, to keep the country safe from wildfires and to to look after the land so that all those resources weren't destroyed because people depended on the land for food. And you could understand that when old people lived on the land all those thousands of years, they lived on the land and they were looking after it because that was their food source, the whole landscape. And all the different ecosystems is, have different values. Some we burn, some, you know, that don't burn and... And each system has um, certain plants and animals that um, come from those systems. And that's just that diversity is so important for survival. And that diversity is so important for all the resources that come from Australia, all the natural resources that like animals and plants and depended on people to um, keep country respected and looking after those systems. So the Aboriginal fire management is, is finding that real fine groove um, where people are part of the country and are in sync with natural law. And that natural law, it's really quite practical. It means that you can learn how to read the bush and understand its fire risks and how to mitigate them. The key to a fire management is is understanding the, the, you know, the trees and the vegetation and all the values in landscape. And so it's the trees that are the main one and the soils. Um, in places where there's no trees, like, um, you know, more open sort of grassland areas. But majority of the fire country and even understanding the no-fire country is is to know the trees. And the trees tell us what soils are there. And when we see a mixture of trees, it also tells us what soils are there um, with all the different mixtures of values that come from those trees. So bloodwood will have a sandy component and... You know, the iron bark would bring a more harder soil and rocky sort of component and the gum brings a more of a grey colour and the box brings a darker colour and, you know, and so on and so on. It all, they bring their um, their values through soils and some of them share similar soils like basalt and red sand country and bauxite country and um, where they share similar soils but maintain the same curing times and maintain the same basic laws of um, applying fire as to um, other um, systems that have their own identity of soil soil types. So it's a whole range of um, understanding of that knowledge and that's how I was taught by old people. And So going to different places is all about reading landscapes through trees and the vegetation and the soils and that's how we can adopt principles and share knowledge and help people rebuild their knowledge from landscape through practical application. Okay, so perhaps you're thinking, yeah, that sounds very practical. But there's a whole body of knowledge that you don't know anything about. So how do you even start to do this? How do you learn to read the bush? It first starts off with just learning about the concepts and getting the material out there that can educate you around fire management, um, the books and videos and... um, the things that are out there um, that have been done by the Indigenous communities and share that perspective. And there's a lot of resources out there to help with that process. And But also, 
get someone in your region to come around and have a look at your property, find out who they are, get in touch with Fire Sticks. We may be able to um, give you a name of uh, someone in your region. And if there isn't someone in your region, then um, we urge you to talk to your local councils, your rural fire brigades and you know, just your neighbours to, to come together and say, hey, let's get a workshop going for our region and um, let's get these guys in, the closest practitioners or in to run these workshops and to start the process in um, getting a handle around fire in your region and, and what you need to do to look after your country. In a moment, we'll take a look at homes in the bush and what can be done to help protect them from bushfires. Welcome back to the Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future. We're looking at bushfires and what we can do to protect our lives, our homes, and our communities. There's a lot we can do. We can read the bush and manage the land, as we've learned from Victor Stephenson. And we can also take a look at our homes. So let's start with how a home succumbs to bushfire. We put that question to Ian Ware, an architect who specializes in designing homes in bushfire-prone areas. So in Australia, we bunch a whole lot of phenomena into this term bushfire. You know, it includes ember attack, it includes radiant heat, and of course it includes flame contact. But one thing that we really understand is the flame contact is actually often not from the bush, but is from other things around the vicinity of our houses. That might be the deck attached to the house. It might be the vegetation immediately in our gardens. It might be other things, a boat, for example, that's on fire from ember attack. So I guess the first thing is to, as I said, understand what we mean by the term bushfire and break that down into this kind of spectrum or, or this uh, other um, subset, if you will, a lexicon of terms that helps us understand actually what is impacting us and our houses. So if we break those, uh, those terms down, embers, radiant heat and flame contact, the majority, and we're talking above 90% of houses are lost from ember attack. What we're actually seeing... Um, with all the research that has been uh, accumulated through the CSIRO as the primary researcher in post-fire uh, assessments, is that houses are catching fire, are igniting from ember attack and often igniting the neighbouring house. And this, this has occurred definitely in, in areas that were recently impacted by the, in the Black Summer fires. If ember attack is the main threat... How do we know how susceptible a home is to these ember attacks? So we've got uh, houses highly susceptible to ember attack, meaning that embers are being drawn into the combustible uh, elements of the house, whether that's the interior of the house or whether that's in wall cavities and roof spaces. Embers are getting in and igniting that house. Now, then you've got a house fire, which is quite a lot uh, longer in duration and often more intense in heat than a bushfire itself. And, of course, that's going to ignite the neighbouring house if it's close enough and built uh, equally uh, vulnerably. So so that's, generally speaking, what's happening with embers. We're talking about small um, burning particles, um, greater than two millimetres in, in cross-sectional area. So if we imagine those sparks in a storm impacting on, on our house. And just also reminding ourselves that 
in bushfires, we're not just talking about intense winds, but we're actually talking about intense negative pressures. So uh, what, what essentially I'm saying is that sparks can be sucked into a house because of those negative pressures. Okay, so how do we protect our home from these ember attacks? So when we look at how we can protect uh, an existing home, we've got a number of things we've got to look at. When we've got a large horizontal surface, which is made out of timber, i.e. a deck, that can not only collect a lot of leaf litter um, through the season before a fire, but it can collect a lot of burning firebrands and material during the fire event. So that is likely to be one of the greatest weak, weakest links that, uh, that homeowners will have because we love to build decks in our bushland landscapes. We are Australians. We want to be connected to the bush and we love to build decks. The cheapest deck to build is a timber one. Uh, we like to use timber in timber landscapes. We're setting ourselves up for a fail there. Um, so we need to have a good look at how our, our timber decks are positioned and are they are likely to fracture glass if they're ignited. It's not necessarily a problem, them being timber and them being a deck, but what's their relationship to the building? Visualise that deck ignited. Now, when we're looking at gaps, this is really just a forensic look at the full three-dimensional envelope of the building. So looking at the ridge line, looking at all of the junctions, wherever one plane changes direction and facets into another plane, so where the wall goes around a corner, where the wall meets uh, the ceiling or the roof or the suffete of the eaves, all of those exterior junctions, I call that the first line of defence, we need to forensically look at those gaps. And there's a whole range of things we can use to protect those. A quick trip down to the hardware store can get you um, fire-resilient um, silicon sealers, can get you some two-millimetre stainless steel mesh, can get you some rock wool insulation, and you can start filling all those gaps. And you're going to be stopping a big part of the problem, which is the embers being drawn in by negative pressures and blown in by positive pressures into your wall spaces, into your, roof, into your roof spaces, and into your interior. There's a lot of solid, practical advice here. A homeowner in the bush who does this inspection, who looks for the gaps and the places that embers can get into their home, they'll go a long way toward managing the risks posed by bushfires. And that needs to happen, because we've been building in the bush without really thinking about bushfires. Houses in Australia have not been built with consideration of bushfire resilience as the first principle. Um, even in the last 10 years when we've had a regulatory framework that uh, mandates in part the, the use of things like instruments like the Australian Standard AS3959, we still have a lot of resistance uh, because of misinformation around cost, um, because of people trying to make shortcuts, and generally people thinking, look, you know, um, I've got a, a, a kind of a, a First Amendment right in Australia to, uh, like a birthright to build a conventional house. This is our biggest problem in this country. You know, we don't expect to win the Le Mans in a Holden Commodore, but we do expect to uh, be able to build our standard house that we have got in the back of our minds that we should be able to build on our property. It's usually about three bedrooms and two bathrooms, and we just should have a right to do that. And uh, and so we're just going to find the way that we can do that. And um, 
I'm not in any way saying that people need to uh, commission architects. I understand that the largest proportion of people that are looking to build in the bush can't uh, can't afford that time and cost. But they need to rethink, um, you know, the first principles. And from my view, and I've got skin in the game here. I am building in a highly bushfire prone area and I'm and my site is four hectares. This is a very large site. But you know, my house is twenty square meters and I have a family of four. It's twenty square meters. Let's stop thinking big. Um, as far as um, spatial size, let's think adaptation. Adaptation. Now, the first thing that often comes to mind when you're thinking about adaptation is, okay, clear the land. Should you clear the bush around your home? That's a question that gets posed a lot. And I guess the answer to that is it depends. It depends on the type of land around your home, the landscape, and the plants and the trees on that land. This is the thing that a homeowner in the bush needs to learn about and get help with before they make a decision. It all seems to depend on everything that's specific about the land, about the bush, about the home. And that brings us back to the importance of having an understanding of the bush. What people need to be looking at in their own backyard and their own front yard is just understanding, okay, there's the bush, there's the trees, and then thinking, okay, maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the trees are actually good, because often they are. Let's understand the fuel. What is the fuel that is actually the problem? Now, generally, we call that available fuel, and that means the fuel available to the fire front the stuff that's going to create all that radiant heat and and flame contact. Um, And what is fuel? Fuel is generally the stuff that's kind of smaller in thickness and in diameter than your little finger. So six to 10 millimetres downwards, that's the stuff that will ignite and be part of the fire front. So when we're looking out our, you know, through our beautiful sliding glass doors and so on onto our bushland landscape, understand that there's trees, that's okay, but what's the fuel? What is the bark on those trees? What is everything from the mineral earth, from the bare ground up to, say, two or three metres in that landscape? And if that can be fuel, then what sort of problem I've got? We can imagine that the vegetation will create, or that fuel would create a fire, a flame length, say, twice the height of the fuel, for example. And then we can go, okay, now I can visualise this landscape the same way a fire fighter will visualise it, because they will see your beautiful green landscape and see it as flames. And so you need to, in part, have that way of visualising your own landscape. And here, Ian Ware sounds an awful lot like Victor Stephenson. The knowledge of looking after the, the bush with Indigenous fire management, like this knowledge we we're talking about, is, is applicable right across the board in any situation in a modern sense. So it can be applied to improve livelihoods, it can be applied to you know, look after the environment, it can be applied to, to keep houses safe. That is really um, what needs to happen around all the townships and homes. They need to be um, knowing that if they live in a fire-prone area, then they should expect the right fire management to, to keep their houses safe. But that's only um, one of the outcomes that will come with it because if we're using this knowledge to burn around um, towns, which we've already started burning around Aboriginal communities and townships um, this year um, down in northern New South Wales, and we've got a little video there that demonstrates everyone coming out of their house and having a sausage sizzle and 
and watching the burns happen around their community um, to keep them safe so they don't have to evacuate. There are two wins here. If we learn the bush, if we learn how to be in the bush, we can manage the bush so that it doesn't burn catastrophically. And we can build homes that will resist bushfires. But there are more benefits than that, because when we realize that we have a responsibility to manage the bush that we're living in, that that's part of the deal, then when we live in that bush, we are continually improving it. Victor is very passionate on this point. If we're burning the right way, then we're going to have green grasses around the community in summer, and we're going to see a more resilient environment around built-up areas, and we'll see green grasses along the side of the roads, and we'll see trees that haven't been scorched and burnt from careless burning and through hazard reductions and other things. And we can actually beautify our towns and... Why wouldn't you not protect your home and beautify your environment and attract animals and, um, and make your home and town not only safe, but just look amazing? And we should start seeing the benefits of managing the bush quite quickly. We'll see um, immediate in- indicators of success within the first burn. And that could be less weeds popping up, um, you know, more grasses and plants that belong there come up and plants that haven't seen in a long time re- reoccur. And other signs are animals that come to the fire and not run away from the fire. And they tell us that we're doing the right thing and, um, you know, the trees aren't damaged. And so all these indicators are short-term indicators that show us we're on the right track. And, you know, and even when we see wildfires not burning the areas that we've burnt and houses saved um, because they've had these burns around their areas are also indicators that we're on the right track. And, and you know, that's, that's, we've shown that through um, little demonstrations in New South Wales and, you know, Queensland and of um, that happening in, in a few areas. So it turns out we actually do know what to do about bushfires to save our lives, our homes and the bush itself. And that's great news. We can survive and even thrive in a land with bushfires. And we're just getting started. It really is um, a, a huge awakening. And, and that's one of the main objectives is to um, really build the, the capacity in, in all the different regions around the country and to ensure that people have that support particularly private land owners that have um, properties and, you know, that stretch from just private properties to livelihoods um, and how we can improve landscapes for them, but also how to make sure that they can manage those landscapes if they are fire prone and, you know, ultimately not build in places that um, are really dangerous, you know, in terms of fire um, threats and like building on hills and that are stony and really hard country that with ironbark trees or or certain um, landscapes that are really attracting um, hot fires in the summer and also lightning strikes. The whole nation needs to go through a whole new awareness of understanding the landscape and not just where we build our houses and how we protect our houses, but also our actions. And that brings us back to this core idea of resilience. Resilience in a bushfire-prone country means work. And it's a work that can heal. And when we do that, we see trees resprouting, the right trees and the parent trees that belong in those systems. And, and we nurture them 
to to grow and to grow old and to um, become old growth and to provide more shade and to more moisture. And so in time, if we get this right, we will see in the future less fire by making a healthy landscape. But because the land's been cleared, they've chopped all the trees down, they've opened it up completely and they bring in weeds, they've created a more fire-prone country by doing that. And that doesn't take away the relevance of Indigenous fire management because um, it's the baseline knowledge that's going to help heal that landscape and to turn it around. And, and it's from the baseline knowledge that we, we um, adapt and we are able to adapt different types of burns um, for sick um, country and for countries that have different problems, health problems. And it's just like people, you know. You know, you don't give someone with a heart problem medicine of someone who has, you know, a diabetic or, you know, you've got to give them different medication. And it's the same with the landscapes. If the landscape hasn't got grass and it's got leaf litter or this one's got lantana and this other one's got, um, you know, an invasive grass, you know, that's not from this country, then they're going to have different um, applications and adjustments of that baseline knowledge of understanding um, what should be there. And that's how we adjust our fires to improve landscapes. So healing landscapes is a, you know, that's a whole other book of knowledge that is that all comes from the book of maintaining landscapes, from the baseline knowledge of um, Aboriginal fire knowledge of Australia. And, and that's how we can heal landscapes. Healing the land after all we've been through in the black summer, that feels like something worth doing. It's good work. It's the kind of hard yards that Australians are up for. And it's the third chapter in our user's guide to the future. Now, let me tell you, after recording the show and talking to these people, I feel very passionate that we can do something here. We can do something about bushfires. So if you've heard the show and you have a friend or a relative who lives out in the bush and you think that they could benefit from what we've heard Victor and Ian and Sarah say, please just share the show with them. Now, in our next episode, we'll take a look at air travel. We're not really doing a lot of it right now, but it's going to come back. And when it comes back, it's going to be very different. So what are the risks associated with air travel and will we even be able to afford them? That's the next chapter in our user's guide to the future. All this talk about bushfires and indigenous fire practices and making your home more resistant to bushfire, all of it is probably raising some questions. And if so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website at nextbillionseconds.com or leave us a message on LinkedIn. We'll do our best to answer them. Big thanks to Josephine Stars, Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick, Victor Stephenson, and Ian Weir for coming onto our show. Thanks to the Center for Climate Extremes at UNSW for facilitating connections with some of the world's best climate scientists. The Next Billion Seconds User's Guide to the Future was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia in partnership with GIO. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One Australia app, or search the next billion seconds. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. Listener.